Hey, y'all. Welcome to All About the Pod podcast with the University of Georgia Peanut Team. I am Macy Wheeler, your host, bringing you real-time updates from our scientists, extension specialists, extension agents, growers, graduate students, and everyone in between. Welcome back to episode 12 of All About the Pod. And this morning, I have two more graduate students with me, um, Nick and Chad. You say that is a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. Two more graduate (laughs) Well, I've had... This is my third graduate student episode, so maybe people are tired of hearing about us, but it's going to be okay. So I have Nick and Chad with me, if y'all would like to introduce yourselves. Yeah, good morning, uh, Chad Abbott. Good morning, Nick Shea. And if you want to go ahead and just start about where you grew up, how you got into ag, um, just go through your undergrad, master's, and all that stuff, um, whoever wants to go first. Well, Nick, you're the older one, so you go ahead. <laughs> okay, I'll take that. <laughs> So I grew up in western New York, and um, I grew up in ag country in Allegheny County. And so it's a lot of dairy farms, a lot of corn, a lot of uh, forage, so a lot of alfalfa. And uh, I grew up in town, but I worked on a dairy farm. And so just as a laborer, milking cows, moving tractors around. And, uh, you know, come full circle, I find myself in Atlanta. Uh, chasing a girl to Atlanta <laughs> and uh, found out real quickly that this country boy uh, needs to be back in the country so uh, that wasn't really working out so what I did is I got my undergrad at Kennesaw State in environmental science and I worked for a few years but was really trying to get back into the ag world and I thought first um, I was going to go into soils because I really enjoyed a soil class Uh, from a professor up there and so I was like yeah I really want to work with soils and so that I was searching around the country to try to find a a role and um, I couldn't really find anything that suited my situation having a baby right when I graduated my undergrad and so I waited a couple years until a position opened up down here in Tifton uh, working with um, Lisa Baxter and working in forages yeah. And so I worked in forages for a couple of years looking at invasive species um, and then, you know, just networking and enjoying the research process and uh, didn't feel quite ready, uh, wanted, wanted a little bit more training. And so um, found myself in a Ph.D. program under uh, Dr. Prosco, uh, looking at uh, a few different things, um, looking at weed control in peanuts and sorghum, uh, as well as uh, some some new weeds, looking at pink purslane, doing some greenhouse work. So uh, trying to expand my experience and portfolio as far as different research projects. Well, Nick, I want to interject and say that you had a weed control aspect to your master's program. Like, you know, you didn't even talk about that. You had controlled smut grass. Yeah. And that's kind of like how you got into to weed science. Yeah. And then you met me. That's right. And then you turned my world upside down. <laughs> Nuts about nothing. <laughs> so. so now you're working on peanut. Now being from, you said New York? Is being that right? Being from New York. There's there's no peanuts. Did you think they grew on a bush or, they, or did you know I they had no idea. I had no idea, really. <laughs> um, I was just curious because that's always a question yeah. that people throw at us when they're from the north. It's like, where's the bush at? I want to see the bush. Like, there you go. <laughs> So, yeah, I'll, I'll uh, get started. I'm from Augusta, Georgia. Um, grew up uh, in Forest Hill. Like my dad was uh, a forest ranger and fought fires out west my entire life growing up. And anyway, just being outside, being in the outdoors, hunting and fishing is something I was always passionate about. And didn't really have a plan after high school. And somehow I had a teacher who said, Hey, what do you want to do? And I, I didn't have any plans. And she's like, well, do you know who ABAC is or where ABAC is? And I said, I've heard of it. And so she made me fly there. And obviously ABAC is in Tipton. And it's like, well, I'll, I'll start in Fourth Street Wildlife. But uh, so I got got down here in 2008 and then um, needed a job. And so I ended up getting a job under the direction of uh, Dr. Scott Tubbs here at UGA, uh, you know, Falcon Souls agronomist and uh, and uh cropping systems agronomist and really, really found that I enjoyed working in peanuts. I, I really enjoyed, you know, this, the, the structure of the crop, the processes involved. It kind of reminded me of splitting firewood because 
when you do peanut research, you have to handle those, those pods about eight different times before you ever get the end result. And that, that kind of just goes to, to the processes of firewood with me. But anyway, um, worked with uh, a PhD student who, who was under Dr. Tubbs, and uh, name was Jason Sarver, and he was hired on as the peanut specialist at Mississippi State uh, when he graduated from here. And he, I guess, felt sorry enough for me and, and was like, hey, you know, would you like to come be my grad student at Mississippi State? And I said, sounds like a good opportunity. And we worked together for, uh, you know, about four years. And we were looking at, uh, he was the peanut specialist. He had a 50-50 research extension appointment and uh, ended up kind of overseeing the, the research um, aspect and, and looking at uh you know, his overlooking the uh, the research program while he was taking care of all the growers across the state, and we pretty much, you know, doubled the the you know through our efforts helped double the acreage of peanut in in our time there at Mississippi. So it went from about twenty thousand acres to about forty thousand acres when we left from we got there in about two thousand fourteen and ended up leaving there in two thousand and eighteen. So I uh, really had uh, what well, we you know feel like a profound effect on. You know, helping growers understand a little bit more about uh, growing peanuts and the processes in, involved with that. And my research there, uh, my master's research was looking at establishing defoliation thresholds in uh, Mississippi peanut. And it was a lot of hand defoliation, uh, looking at trying to stimulate caterpillar defoliation and the effect that uh, foliage feeders can have on, um, on you know, pod yield. And so we really found that, you know, peanuts are extremely sensitive to defoliation, uh, you know, at, at like 80, well, our timing was 80 days after emergence. But I think there's, you know, when we you know, have peanuts are developing and, you know, we have that time frame of peak pod fill, you know, anytime you disrupt that, that photosynthetic engine right. and you disrupt that supply chain of photosynthates to pod fill, um, peanuts are really sensitive to that. And that's what we found, that, you know, even minor defoliation, like 10% defoliation at that timing was, was critical at, um, you know, you know, reducing yield. And, and so that was kind of eye opening because we've always know that, you know, peanuts are pretty tolerant and, you know, pretty hardy crops. And so that was eye opening. And then, um, graduated from Mississippi State, didn't know, had a couple options, ended up working in industry, uh, for a couple of years, uh, brought me back down to Tifton and then, found my way to working under Dr. Prosco in weed science and his program is you know about 50% looking at weed science and peanuts and then we have other research projects in, in corn and beans and um, a few other crops but really enjoyed getting back into peanuts and so my, my projects are looking at addressing new cultivar responses to uh, some potential novel herbicides. One of them has been around a long time just had different applications primarily an aquatic herbicide and uh, seeing how it fits within a row crop production, you know, standpoint, it is an under underutilized mode of action. It's a group twelve, something that we don't see in a whole lot of you know row crop production systems. Uh, the active ingredient is for them, under the trade name Break, and so we were trying to see how it fits across different cultivars and how it plays into um, a weed control program. And then we're looking at some. Off-target stuff. Uh, we did a, a multi-state trial with glyphosate and dicamba um, at multiple timings at low uses or low low use rates, and seeing how peanuts responded to that at uh, different timings—30, 60 days, and 30, 60, and 90 days. And then we looked at some. Uh, we're looking at forestry herbicides and the effect that it has on uh, peanuts. You know, we have over 11 million acres of pine trees in the state, and we have over 800,000 acres of peanuts in the state. So there's a lot of interface between those two crops. And uh, I mean, people, you know, we have pine tree farms and we have, uh, you know, obviously production farms or crop production farms. And so, you know, people manage their forestry and timber uh, with herbicides just as, just as well as uh, farmers manage their cotton and peanuts with herbicides. And so what happens when, you know, an aerial application of those two forestry herbicides are, you know, drifted on to, to okay. peanuts. And so that's some of the questions that we're trying to answer. It's very applied research. We're trying to answer grower, grower direct questions, and I think we've got some, you know, pretty good understanding of how arsenal, uh, you know, and, and garlon both affect uh, peanut from from the time they before they come up to sixty days after, and and the yield effects that they those two herbicides have on that. So, 
So did you get your undergrad in forestry? Yes. Uh, yeah. Okay. I, I guess I skipped over that, but it was a forestry of wildlife. So, okay. Yeah. Yeah, I know when we were at ABAG, it was always the nursing school of ag, yeah. <laughs> of how hard it is. But that's cool that it's come full circle for what you're working with now. Yeah, yeah, and it's, so. it kind of kind of plays to, to, to both of my both sides of my heart, and a little bit of forestry and and yeah. and then grow crop as well. So, um, but it's not just <clears throat> it's not very easy though, is it? With all these little projects you're working on, I mean, for for Eric to figure out and be able to diagnose problems or to understand what went wrong i mean it's not it's not an easy thing to figure out sometimes a broad subject in area. yeah it's a broad but i mean what i'm getting at is is what you're doing is important because a lot of times we get diagnostic calls where people calls out to to the field say what the hell happened and we don't know yeah yeah so some of this is new chemistry or we just never have thought about you know well the forestry products coming on or being blown on to the peanut so it's kind of an interesting little approach yeah absolutely and that's kind of it's so triclopyr is a synthetic auction and so prosco and his former grad student dr you know Wynn carter looked at pickle ram and its effect on peanut well they're in the same chemical family but they have drastic uh responses peanut is more tolerant to triclopyr than it is to pickle ram and then arsenal is basically the same chemical structure as cadre just a slight variation in the R1 binding site, but they have drastic implications on crop tolerance and near crop destruction. And so it's mm-hmm. you can't say that, oh, just because one chemical is very similar to the other means it'll be okay. Well, that's that's not the case at all. I, and, and so that's really kind of becoming more and more evident. Um, you know, something that you may kind of glance over it's like well just because this peanut was treated with pickle ram you know it has a long half-life in, in the field and, and so peanuts can be very sensitive to that well if peanuts are you know punted into a field of you know a field that was treated with triclopyr maybe not that bad and so um it really kind of opens your eyes to the variation that you know crops respond to different chemicals even within the same chemical family or similar structure so what are what are some of the things you found in your project so far that you didn't know or you you know you thought was interesting so far? Yeah, and well, some of the, the stuff I'm working on is kind of a carryover of what Chad has been working on, looking at break. Um, and we know that oftentimes it can be difficult here in the southeast to get a timely application of our herbicides out, mm-hmm. uh, whether it be weather or you know how many acres you have i mean there's a plethora of reasons why these producers can't get out in the field on time and so we're looking at break timing on peanuts at one three five and seven days after planting and fortunately based on you know this past year and this is only one year's you know worth of data it's that we're seeing that it doesn't really have that much of an impact on yield now we do see that symptomology early on in the season, um, you're going to see some of that bleaching occur, um, but it is transient. And you know, with a with a long growing crop like peanuts, and they're a hardy crop. That's one thing I've noticed coming into this program um, is that peanuts can take a lot of abuse, and um, but they also need a lot of care at the same time with fungicides and yeah. fertilizer and different herbicides at different timings of the year. So. Um, but with that being said, it's it's transient, and so we're able to see that you know an off off time application of break, you can still um, you can still manage and care for that crop throughout the growing season. So that's one thing we've been looking at. Another thing we've been looking at is expanding our uh, understanding of uh, chlorimuron, which is classic in new varieties, since there hasn't been much work done. Uh, since I think it's around 2013 and so we don't understand uh, you know what that what that will do and basically what that is used for is kind of um, you know we have oftentimes we have Florida beggar weed which is a huge problem in peanuts and um, oftentimes even when we get our pre-applications out um, or early posts um, we get a lot of breakthroughs with that later on in the season um, it could be because of coverage or, um, you know, for, for whatever reason. And so 
Um, typically, I mean, it, that plant can cause a lot of a lot of issues with harvesting or fungicide applications later in the season, not being able to get good coverage. And so we can use Classic um, to help control Florida beggar weed later on in the season and do a post application. So if we if we've used Classic for all these all these many years, why one there's not it's not used on many acres. All right, that could be for several reasons. Mm-hmm. One in particular, I hope you say something about. The other one is, um, if if it's there and we use it, what's stopping us from from using it all the time? That makes sense. It might be the same question twice, but go ahead. Oh well, from my understanding, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but we have we have some other herbicides with better residual residual control that we've been utilizing, like Valor, for instance that we can use and so um and so we don't have to depend on depend on that herbicide as much and there's other herbicide technologies that we've been adding to the portfolio that we can utilize and so uh from my understanding i think only um i think 85 percent of producers maybe use it 10 percent of the time um in a growing season so it's not a high number but it's still important to understand if that's if there's a situation where they need to use it, um, that they have that as a, an option depending on the, the variety that a they're tool using. Their in the tool field. belt is yeah. Okay. Right. yeah. Well, I think what I was trying to aim at is a lot of people have backed off of it probably because it's made spotted wood virus, right? Mm-hmm. It, yeah. It, it, it can enhance tomato spotted wilt virus. And that, that's again why what you're doing with the new varieties is important because we want to see with the new resistance, is it the same kind of effect? Because again, we can't. You you mentioned one thing that I that I thought was very interesting in the fact that you said we got valor. Well, valor is used on what all crops almost except for cotton, or is it used on cotton too? Can't remember. I know it's used on a lot of other crops. I mean, valor can be used for like a pre-plant burn down. It just we need a two week you know window right. before we, we fall yeah. behind that. But my my point is is we're using a lot of valor. Mm-hmm. And so that was the same thing for why potentially you're looking at break too, right? Is just in case Valor dissipates or we don't have the efficacy anymore, we got something else to use. But it, it's good to have those those other things in the toolbox, especially if we have better resistance to tomato spotted wilt virus, and that helps us out. So what you're doing evaluating on the new varieties, I think is, is pretty cool. I mean, that's what we need to be doing. Yeah. And, and that kind of like, you know, process thinking five years ahead, 10 years ahead, you know, what happens if we do lose uh, valor within the peanut production system? I was going to say, when can it get resistance oh. at some point? Well, we know that. Using it this this much? Well, yeah, we know that Palmer is resistant to PPO. Yeah. Um, Dr. Culpepper and Taylor Randall have, have confirmed that somewhere in Georgia. Yeah. And um, I think that's in a pretty heavy soybean production area. But that's about all I know as far as that goes. And so how do we look at um, the spread and how do we control the spread of PPO-resistant Palmer amaranth? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think right now it's still pretty effective from a pre-emergent standpoint, whereas post-emergent applications of PPO herbicides on resistant Palmer is not effective. Um, from a pre-standpoint, we are still pretty effective. You know, pre-emergent herbicides are one of the most effective things we can use from a chemical standpoint of controlling weeds. Now, we obviously have other cultural methods that we can use for, for controlling weeds, but killing them before they ever come up is, is a tried-and-true method, and I think that's kind of how we got away from, or that's how, that's how we got into, you know, resistance issues. Glyphosate that took away mm-hmm. the the need for pre-emergent herbicides. We'll just make two or three glyphosate applications over the top and we can control everything. Well, that's not the case anymore. You see the, the soup bowl that we're in. So going back into to looking at the future of a new new herbicides that we can use uh, from a pre-standpoint in peanut production is, is you know the focus of Prosco's uh, program and, and how that plays into the new cultivars that we can utilize in Georgia. Utilize, you know, Georgia 6G is a staple variety, the cultivar for 85% of the acres that we have in the state, but, um, you know, Georgia 12Y is, I feel like, gaining, gaining traction. Um, you know, it looks looks good, just plant it early, and um, 
I mean, y'all can talk more about that. I mean, yeah. you're, you're the you're the peanut agronomist. Yeah, we, we've talked a lot about that. So let me put y'all two on the spot then. <laughs> you, you're working on new herbicides, okay? There is a push for us to do less tillage work, you know, the, to increase the, you know, carbon sequestration, to have more residue, to have more... Th- how does something like that, when you take one of the tools that we use to manage something like Palmer, which is tillage, mm-hmm. um, we take that out. And I'm not saying we're going to because we're not in the near future, but I understand. And we, we do need to do things as better stewards of the soil, and we try to. But that it, it may not fit perfectly for every crop. I know we're doing it in all the other crops, but peanut is a little different. Um but how does the work that y'all are working on now, how could it adjust how we use tillage? You know, could what y'all are doing now help us do more reduced tillage? Or is break and some of these other chemistries the same as Valor, that we really need good, you know, activity and we can't do it just by chemistry by itself and we need the tillage? That makes sense? Yeah, I, I think I understand what you're saying. And I want to go back and, and kind of ask you the question, like, well, why do we use rotation? We rotate chemicals, we rotate um, crops, and so I think we need to rotate tillages. Um, if we, you know, if we're rotating crops, like so if we have a corn, uh, cotton, peanut rotation, um, and you're, you're out of peanuts two or three years, use reduced tillage in those crops that you don't have to to dig up the ground. But we know to get peanuts into a basket, we have to invert them. So you're going to be disturbing the, till, you know, the soil, you know, yeah. at least to a certain degree. And we know that deep tillage has a profound effect on reducing uh, the Palmer seed bank for, you know, as long as it's buried for like three years. And so if you can get that, that palmer seed buried deep where it won't germinate and then use cover crops, um, use whatever program that fits what's inside of a grower's production system. Um, if it's you know, certain row spacings, if it's earlier planting dates, um, you know, corn offers a lot of different um, effective herbicides controlling palmer amaranth um, from, from that standpoint. Cotton, you know, does well in a reduced tillage uh, system, Dr. Culpepper says, hey, you know, 4,000 pounds of biomass or of rye, rye biomass does a pretty good job of controlling Palmer. Now, you still need pre-emergent herbicides along with that. And so I think it's a testament to util- utilizing a multifaceted approach. And uh, tillage is an approach. And I think it's it's benefit- beneficial for peanuts. Now, maybe not every acre is is flat and you know if you have some highly erodible soils and you need to you know utilize strip tillage mm-hmm. i think it's fine too um it just situation you know how each situation is a little bit different yeah i can say and i think we have to use all these tools because if not we're just going to get to resistance quicker and yeah. then we're going to be in an even bigger mess than we already are yeah. Um, which y'all know more about it than I do, but just from outside perspective. <clears throat> so you're you're coming new. You're coming from way outside of the southeast, right? And so you're yeah. probably more used to, which I reckon dairy farms same way, doing things. I mean, they've got to do certain things to minimize effects of what they do on the environment. Mm-hmm. Um, what is this? What is this? culture look like to you coming in? Given that my background's in environmental science, um, you know, that perspective has has always weighed heavy on me when I came into both my master's and my PhD, just because everything uh, that we're, we're taught and trained through there is environmental, you know, it's, it's, it's bringing that environmental perspective in. Mm-hmm. So, um, What's your what's your outlook from you know where you were to where you are now? Like so, yeah, you know, where you came from the, the northeast and your environmental background. You know, I guess common ag practices are maybe slightly frowned upon. Yeah, and how do you, your experience now? You know, you've been with Prosco since June. Yeah, how was that short period of time? You know, we're in December, so you've been here 
six months. How has the six months that you've been here impacted you in your former training? Uh, what I've learned is that, I mean, we need resilient systems. We can't depend on one production system to get it done. Um, so, you know, there's oftentimes in the environmental world that from my experiences with folks, uh, whether that be in school or after school and some of the the industry that I worked in that, that say, you know, we need to go to no-till, no herbicide, um, and we can be, we can feed the world that way. And, you know, I kind of drank the Kool-Aid a little bit just because I didn't have any other experience. And I think that's one of the big things is that there's, there's not um, a push for more education maybe in these institutions that are preaching this message and they just, they just don't know. And I didn't know. So when I came down here and I realized the difficulties and the challenges that producers and university is facing trying to solve all of these issues while producing more food on less land to yeah. feed a growing population is extremely difficult. I think that's where I was aiming with your question, not to put you on the spot and make you feel yeah. bad, but what I was trying to get out of you is, is the more and more that we're in the ag and the more and more we try to educate people and we try to bridge out and, and really try to work with all the other groups is that we don't understand each other very well. Yeah. No matter if it's the environmentalist groups and agriculture or whatever, you know, we're doing things because we need to survive today. We need to survive tomorrow and the next, you know, day. And we're doing now in in our in our minds, growers are not bad stewards of the land. There's no way that they are yeah. because they're trying to make a living. They need to be able to ensure that they're here next year. Yeah. That's the problem. Their entire livelihood and their family. <clears throat> I mean, I know the grower I work with, his entire family of what ten works for him. Yep. yep. And he's an amazing steward of the land. They wouldn't be here without it. But with the, but they they can't predict what's going to happen five or ten years from now. Yeah. They are just doing things year by year because that's how the risk of farming causes you to be narrow minded, and that's the wrong word. It it Limited. makes you think in a shorter period of time, not into five ten years down the road, because you've got to make a living. Yeah. Now, what I would ask anybody is from both sides is that we need to do more talking. Right. Mm -hmm. We need to. We, and so maybe I can that's have the EPA we, on here. Well, we could do a lot of things. Um, <laughs> Culpepper has done wonderful bringing people yeah. down from EPA to learn about the system. Yeah. Now, when they come down and learn about the system, we're also learning about their system. Mm -hmm. And so it's a it's a two way street. And so this whole thing with reduced tillage and trying to do more carbon and trying, you know, we need to make a swap, you know, or switch a hundred percent. We can't do that. And we're attacking, in my mind, we're attacking one crop at a time. We need to attack the system. Yeah. You know, to, like you said earlier, we're doing very good with reduced tillage in these two crops that we're rotating with, whether it's corn or cotton. We can't do that 100% with the way that we have to do peanuts. Now, does that mean that we're ruining things with peanuts? No. It's just that it's different. We can put cover on the ground and then bottom plow it in you know, still doing, mm -hmm. so there's a lot of things that we can do, and we are adjusting as we go, but I would love, you know, and that's part of what we're trying to do is trying to find more of you guys that are from, you know, that want to be involved with us, environmentalist or whatever, to get into agriculture because we need more people to understand why we do it. Because yeah. we got to train the next yeah. people. Well, right? I, I think, you know, kind of, kind of stepping back a little bit, it's like if you put sustainability in a Venn diagram, and on one side of the Venn diagram, you've got the farmers. They're trying to be sustainable for that year. And then you have the environmentalists, and they're trying to be sustainable for however long. But in somewhere in the middle, you know, there is like common ground. And mm -hmm. I think that going back to, you know, we need to, to help the EPA or the environmentalists understand what our vision of sustainability looks like then they can help us see their vision of sustainability and at some point you know work that path together 
But yeah. you know, there is give and take in every situation. You know, it's a hag is not black and white. And yeah. so I think you know, I just wanted to like I, I saw like we are trying to be sustainable. Farmers are trying to sustain for their family, for their future, for their, their livelihood. You know, they're passionate about it. You know, whether it's ag or yeah. or cows or you know whatever it may be, livestock. And you know, I don't I don't want the world to be in a in a bad place for my children, but. We can all improve. That's the biggest thing. Yeah. I mean, we all got room for for improvement all the way around, but we all gotta. We need to come together and work on this together. Yeah. But we just need more understanding. Yes. And that's I think that's the biggest key is we got to have more understanding. The one thing that we know we've got to do is feed more people. Yep. And we can't do that when we're reducing the amount of acres or, you know, causing us to have to change drastically on how mm-hmm. we do things. We're not going to be able to do that. And so we've got to figure out, like I said, common ground. So. Yeah. And like you Nick, said, Nick, that you kind of drank the Kool-Aid while you were in your environmental science industry. Yeah. But we can all say that we do. I mean, when you're surrounded by it 24-7, that's just what you consume, what you learn. So it's not anyone's fault but yeah i think we definitely need to learn from each other and it's no matter what it is i mean it's yeah no yeah either side of it we're gonna there that's why we get trained right yeah we get yeah. trained in science to try to explain things yeah and so that's that's what we need to use to try to work out this whole system to work us to be more economically sustainable and i think that's the that's the biggest thing and there's a lot of things that we need to do and and I would say, you know, as we go forward, we got a lot of groups that are trying to get farmers to speak more on how sustainable they are at this point. Um, you know, our our um, peanut council, the Georgia Peanut Commission, uh, they've, you know, we've all are trying to be a part of some sustainability type programs to understand things a little bit more. So growers need to do their part too. They need to come in, not say, you know, they need to share all of their livelihood with us, but we need to be able to, you know, bring stuff into that survey, these, or, or programs, and, and try to say, hey, we are doing the most that we are, you know, or the best that we can at, at this moment at, at trying to be sustainable. we got to be able to explain that. Yeah. Well, without, I mean, they're the one, they're the hands and feet of all this. Without them, we wouldn't be able to do what we do. They have to help us get the answers we need to start, you know, at least start somewhere. I want to kind of go back to what you mentioned uh, with carbon sequestration. And, you know, I'll ask the audience, you know, like the group here, do you think carbon sequestration is sustainable or is carbon cycling sustainable? I ended up writing a paper about liming effects in carbon sequestration, but... Uh, let me ask you a question. Do you think carbon sequestration is sustainable or would you be more apt to say carbon cycling is sustainable? I think you always have to talk about recycling or cycling. Yeah. Um, is more sequestration is always saying that it's fixed. Mm-hmm. That's kind of what I get out of sequestration. You take it and it's there. Um, we're we're going to be in a cycle no matter which way you go. Yeah. And it doesn't matter if it's influence from the growers or influence from our environment. Um, I think carbon in our system is going to is going to change. And so we need to understand that, you know, as we go forward. But I think there's a lot of pressure being put on our growers to do this. And the industry, I think, is the ones that are really needing to have this happen. And so it's, it's, it's a lot of stuff that we're still trying to figure out. Yeah, if I think about like wetland mitigation, you know, if you have a right-of-way or a highway that has to go through a bog or a swamp, you know, they're displacing wetland habitat. Well, they have to make that up somewhere else. And so they have to make sure that right. that certain amount of area somewhere else doesn't get disturbed. And that's a fixed, you know, that's a fixed number of acres or habitat. Whereas, you know, carbon sequestration, they want to try and fix a certain amount of CO2 or carbon, you know, in the soil. Well, if we look at these cabinets in this office, there's sequestered carbon in these wood cabinets. However, I think if we can cycle carbon more efficiently, yeah. you know, we have a, an influx of carbon into the soil from biomass of cover crops. 
you know, that's going to feed the microbes. That's going to feed the fungus and the fungi and the bacteria. Well, all that is going to help with mineralization of the soil fertility. And, you know, the, the minerals and the nutrients that are in that soil that helps promote better crop growth. You know, and then, you know, we have more roots that are growing. That's, you know, holding soil together. Then we have, you know, Nick can talk about root edge dates. He was doing a lot of that stuff, <laughs> you know, looking at papers and stuff on that last year and, and how that, you know, helps with soil structure formation. And then you have better crop growth. Well, you have more crop biomass. You should have increased crop yields. And then if you can help recycle that, that material, which is holding carbon back into the soil profile. So you can increase your carbon cycling. I think that's a more, like, I think that could be a, an adapted version, you know, versus, oh, we need to sequester so much carbon. I think if we could know, if, if we could put a number to how we could cycle more carbon, I think that would be, you know, a good direction to go. Anyway, just, just kind of like off the wall thoughts here. Well, I mean, in my mind, all that has been told right this minute, all that's been shared right this minute in carbon sequestration, is they want growers to produce, I mean, they want growers to determine how much carbon their sequestration, which is all, and, and they're getting paid to do that, something they're already doing mm -hmm. to offset something that an industry is doing that they can't, all, you know, sequester yeah. carbon. Yeah. So I'm not so sure that we're, we're making things better right this minute without understanding why we're doing all this. So, I mean, we, we've not... There's not been enough science to back up how much carbon I'm seeing. And we're learning. Everybody's learning. I mean, I think a grower, if if we know that that we can sequester or, or cycle whatever carbon and we can do it more effectively mm -hmm. and it's going to help them, it's going to help the future, they're going to do that anyway. Mm -hmm. So I'm just trying, you know, I think we all want to be a part of what's best. We just gotta understand it. And I, I'm not quite sure I'm even an agronomist that I don't know that I'm right there understanding where we can make this thing better from one crop at a time. We got, I, and that's where I think it's a system. Systems approach for sure. I think we have to have a systems approach, and I think we can we can we can document how well we're doing. And that's what the industry is trying to do right now. Um. I think the peanut industry is trying to do that. They're going to be at grower meetings this year. I hope, you know, we can help document carbon sequestration or or sustainability, whatever you want to call it, uh, or whichever term that they use. I think we can document that, and it's and it's paving the way to understanding what we need to do. Um, but when we get <laughs> when we get bombarded by stuff without having science behind it it's, yeah. it's kind of hard to understand where to go perfectly for for what we need to recommend growers to do pull it on your heart and not thinking with your brain you know it's like you know it's an emotional knee-jerk reaction it's like well you know maybe really i'll step back a second and then process what's actually going on and, and think about the system that we have and how can we improve it yeah yeah and how long it will take to quantify that too yeah. yeah, and and I'm talking out of one side and probably out of the other too because I don't quite understand all no, of it. It's... And it's not that's not what I'm trained in, right? Yeah, I'm not trained in in all of that, um, but I'm learning, just like you guys learned. Mm -hmm. So, I think I think we all have to move in that general direction, and I think we're going to and do our best to make that work. But I think the quest, the biggest thing is we need to be asking a lot of questions, and we need to be able to listen. Yeah. To, to what we're trying to accomplish from all sides and see, hey, what can we do here? Um, and the, my, the nice thing about you guys going through and doing your PhDs or masters or going on um, is you're from this, this, you're from the US, you're from the system, you're, you're immersed in what's going on around you and so Hopefully, when you get done with your projects, it's going to ask more questions. You're going to have more questions come about that hopefully can feed the next person coming down the road, you know, in the same situation. So, hopefully, we're building on that. We've been building on that forever. Yeah. You know? yeah. Um, that's, that's exactly what Nick's doing now is carrying the torch on that delayed timing with break and uh, another BASF 
product, um, you know, trifluidomoxazine. And so I think there's, it's about, you know, probably five or six years from even coming close to registration, whereas Brake is looking at a full label registration in Peanut um, for 2023. Uh, you know, it's it's obviously a lot uh, more available. You know, three three states to file for Section 18, you know, Missouri, I mean, Alabama, uh, Mississippi, and Arkansas. And, you know, that's trying to help mitigate the resistance issues that they're doing. But going back to Nick, it's like, you know, he's carrying some of the stuff that looking at, you know, delayed timing application because we do have weather events that may or may not um, impede when you can put down a pre-emergent herbicide. And yeah. and then, like, um, yeah, just you, you can talk more about it, I guess. It's your project. Well, I was going to say, just kind of get what happened in my project. So I have a dry lane in the irrigated field. My irrigated field, 2021, planted before six inches of rain. Two weeks later, we had a two-week drought. So, wow. I mean, just in two weeks, you have, you know, something like that can happen with your project. But that's the reality yeah. of growing in South Georgia. That's what happens. So, mm-hmm. Yeah. Would cover crop have helped your... Yours. It was too late. They'd already bedded and everything. Yeah. Okay. So. Yeah. Didn't know if it was a uh, plantar flat or if it was a uh, conventional. Yeah. But if you would have, if you could think about it, you know, would <laughs> would a reduced tillage situation with cover crop biomass, whatever that. And that's something that we're well, all was, trying to to answer yeah. too, because we we initiated a trial this year looking at moisture retention. With cover crops in dry land situations. So we, we've got that both in cotton and peanut that we're rotating over Highway 41. Nice. We've got replicated, two replicated um, cover crops with a fallow, and we're going to be able to do tests on each side each year, and it's replicated within each section. So we're going to be rotating that out from now on. And so that, it, that's kind of getting at that, some of that, right? Yeah. Um, and I, I'm a big proponent of cover crops. I wish we would use more of them. Uh, but the problem is, is we have a limitation, it seems like, in seed mm. and the cost, right? Yeah. And we've mentioned that to a bunch of the industry that would love for growers to be more sustainable, to be you know moving down that road of sustainability. Mm-hmm. Because, like I mentioned to them, even peanut can benefit, the gear going into peanut can benefit from a cover crop. Yeah, because we can kill it two weeks, three weeks, and then turn it in, and then you're just bare ground for three to four weeks out of a year. Yeah, that's a lot better than six months. Hundred percent. Yeah, and so I think there's a lot of room there, but it is expensive uh, to put a cover crop out there, as well as put a little bit of fertilizer out there to get the cover crop up and growing. And so I've mentioned several times to a lot of these companies that really would like to increase sustainability is they need to pass along some incentives to do the cover crop because that's an added expense mm-hmm. that a grower doesn't always get anything out of. That's right. And you might say, well, you just said that he would do whatever he needed to to be sustainable. Yes, but economically sustainable. Yeah. And so if that's his only profit for his farm, he's living on that. I mean, it gets to a point, you can't put so many inputs into a certain situation before you're under. Um, and so you gotta live. And so there's some things that we don't do because we can't afford to do them. Absolutely. And so some farmers can, some farmers can't. And I think if if the industry would help us get behind some of these incentive programs like that, to say, hey, if you'll do this and document that you do it, I'll give. I'll pay for the seed and for the little bit of fertilizer. Now, the one industry can't do that by itself. That's yeah. right. But a combined group of all, you know, say, you know, large percentage of all the manufacturers that do something with peanut might come together and do something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Co-op of some sort. Of some sort. I mean, you know, it's it's one of those things that you know, one group may say, "Well, I buy all my peanuts from this one company." And it's this many acres. I can afford to do that for them. Mm-hmm. To me, if if you tell a grower that you're going to pay for the cover crop and a little bit of fertilizer, why wouldn't he do it? Yeah. Why wouldn't he do yeah. it? I, I don't think he would. 
Are there federal incentives? I don't yeah, know what the very loopholes are. It is okay. very, very minimal. I mean, you're only talking about five or ten dollars an acre. Okay. Yeah. When it costs, you know, thirty-five to forty, if not more, per acre to put cover crop in fertilizer. So, yeah, I mean, so it helps. Yeah. Every little bit helps, but the government program won't do it so much. And so, with us talking as much about the carbon sequestration or whatever and being sustainable. I think if companies really want to know where they can help, that might be one way they could do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's yeah, a start, will, at least. It's a start. They're willing to incentivize trapping carbon in the soil. Why can't they, you know, uh, market or, you know, help incentivize, like you said, the cover Because, product. again, if, you, if you're doing so much of it anyway, I would rather you pay incentive for to do a little bit more. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think that's the point. We're looking at this as from, oh, okay, well, I want doc, you're doing that. I want to get a credit for it. I'll pay you for it. No, no, no I'm going to pay you to do a little bit more. That's what I want you to do is a little bit more. And I think everybody wins. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I just think about $40 an acre, you know, what would that cover as far as like from a peanut production standpoint? You know, what is that? Is that cover, that covers inoculant, that covers, um, that's well, half your seed cost. Half your seed yeah. cost. Or not even half, maybe a third, third. cost. But fungicide I mean, application. Two two fungicide applications. Two, I mean, that's expensive. So I mean, so you gotta think about what what is it that you want to to pay for yeah. or to take out. And that's where they can't they can't pay more and take something out of something. Because a lot of times their resources are finite. Yeah. I don't. I don't know any grower that could pencil out how you know, forty dollars in cover crop and, and fertilizer could outweigh the cost of, you know, the benefit of two fungicide applications. That's right. I, I just don't see any way in this world right now that they could pencil out, and so that's a very realistic question. Yeah. So, so one last question from a student's perspective: What can you tell the next students coming down the pipeline? <laughs> what can y'all? What kind of comments? What kind of help, suggestions? What didn't you know that that you know now as a student? And Savannah and I talked about, um, we did the last episode, talked about a lot of students don't know about assistantships, how much you pay per semester. So we've already talked about that, but you can. That's a good point. A lot of people don't know how it works in ag. I think it's different than most master programs and uh, graduate. And yeah. So y'all didn't take any classes in Athens now, right? That's correct. Yeah. So you've done your PhD project here in Tifton with not having to go to Athens. To me, that's a big benefit. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm a little bit older, so, you know, going to Athens was not really at the top of my priority list. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, being able to stay here in Tifton um, and, and focus on things at home and at work with, you know, the projects that we've got going on was, was pretty important for yeah. me. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's an added benefit, too being here and not having to take a year off to go up there just because that's a year of experience you're missing out on with extension and uh, being out in the field and the research and, and all those experiences that you know you wouldn't gain if you were up yeah. there it's almost so, too far away to make it worth your time to come down here i mean it's not terrible but it's a yeah, yeah. I, I, but i think if a student has a desire to go to Athens. I, I think oh, yeah. there's, there's room for that. Oh, yeah, but I think the biggest thing, it's just an added expense. That's, the biggest, the biggest thing Finding is, housing and stuff up there, yeah. too, is really difficult. I think the biggest thing that we want to make sure that to students, especially master's students that are coming from ABAC or some other university, you've got to make sure you're on the science track. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You can't come and graduate with a bachelor's non-science and then expect to come into a master's program in science and not have to do a lot of back you know go back and fill back in some, yeah. some courses so stay on the science track especially if you're really back if you're interested at all i know i had to take statistics and chemistry my last semester at ABAC, um just because i hadn't had those yet yeah yeah i, I think when i was no like when i got to ABAC. Oh, I, I had no intentions of carrying on my education, and but working with UGA and seeing other students come in and get their master's and PhD opened my eyes to other avenues and yeah. the future where where I am now. Um, you know, is important, and so I think just getting that information out, which y'all are doing here, letting people know that you know 
grad school is a, a very realistic opportunity is important, but it's also important to know the program that you're getting involved with. Yeah. You know, we spend a lot of time with Dr. Prosco, and I'm very thankful for that. He's been a huge mentor um, and adversary and wealth of information for, for me, and I know he will be for Nick. Um, but just the, in the connections that he has, you know, who, who he knows, who he's worked with. Um, he's worked with people people all across the United States and even into, you know, across the world. So I think, you know, if you are looking at the possibility of grad school and if that's something that interests you, it is, it is really, in my opinion, one of the best things you can do is talk to former students that have come through that program and get a get a very real idea of what you're looking at getting into because you're it's a commitment for two to three so years it'll the person you're under will make or break you how yeah. fast is two years yeah. i mean is it slow or fast oh, it, it goes by. so oh, fast yeah. you blink your eye and it's gone right really yeah people that was the other thing I, I just noticed from talking to students oh my goodness two years is a long time it's like it just goes it really even does. three years yeah i mean for a phd three to four i mean it just goes by in a hurry and if you're not, if you come out with a bachelor's and you don't have a job and you got good grades and you want to go, almost everybody has gotten a job when they leave this place with a master's or PhD. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know the any that have not left without a job. And unless a lot of times we got a job waiting on them. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I was going to so, say, unless you're with someone who hasn't given you the experience outside of UGA, but yeah, that's right. pretty rare. I think that also speaks to UGA and the extension and the relationships that have been formed over the years here in Tifton as well. It's, that speaks to that, in my yeah. opinion. Just knowing that these relationships have been established and there's great communication between growers, industry, and academia here. And you know that, you know, you can be confident in knowing that the people that you're working with here are going to put, I mean, they're great individuals, first and foremost. Oh, yeah. And they're family folks. And they understand that you have a life, but they understand that this work that you're doing is important for the people around you. And so um, I just think that, you know, those relationships are important and you can't you can't put a price tag on that. No, you can't. All righty. Well, thank you all for coming. Thanks, Mason. Thank you. Thank you.